welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. My name is Ed Cotton. I am the host of Inspiring Futures, a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. I'm delighted that my guest today is Katie Jeremko. Uh, Katie has a fascinating background um, in all kinds of entrepreneurial ventures in science and NASA and amazing stuff, and obviously has been involved in various ways with thinking about the future, maybe not directly, but somewhat indirectly. Uh, so what I want to do, um, Katie, is like I do with all guests, is get you to give us a little rewind through your um, history, um, giving us a sort of like highlights, resume, where you've been, what you've done, um, to just as a way of background. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my background is, I guess, being led in my life by passion and I'm a huge supporter of technical literacy, open data and the democracy of design. But I've just been a maker at heart my whole life. So I like making things that are easy to use and I found my way in my career to mostly work on user experience design projects. Um, and my work has kind of encompassed the spectrum of enabling human creativity, but also sharing knowledge globally. Um, in 2012, I joined as the designer in residence for NASA headquarters, which is um, where we worked under the Open Innovation Government Directive. It was a, an a, initiative across the world. Um, our primary functions were to socialize data sets, pilot projects between NASA centers. Um, we infused a lot of new culture internally at the agency and we exposed the public to a lot of complex data sets through technology. Um, probably our flagship project when we started the initiative was the International Space Apps Challenge. And this was done to create and curate innovation. So that project was really awesome. We you know, spanned over 48 hours in 83 cities and 44 countries. And you know, the solutions ranged from software to iPhone apps and earth and science applications. And um, what really, you know, that thread of passion that led me to working at NASA, you know, led me to exploring the hackerspace at the Johnson Space Center, where a lot of us in this program would play with a 3D printer. And we would talk about the latest technology around the campus um, and then, you know, collaborate with like-minded folks who were involved in this great initiative called Engineers Without Borders. We naturally had a lot of cool conversations and questions naturally developed from there. Um, and in 2013, a few of us started this company called Re3D, which was an initiative to tackle human scale 3D printing, where we developed, delivered um, on a series of high profile Kickstarter campaigns. Um, and how that evolved was we actually got a booth at South by Southwest through this incubator we were in, in Startup Chile. And we had a matter of six weeks to actually make the prototype for the machine to launch on Kickstarter and a show at um, South by Southwest. And so we did that and we prototyped this machine. It's called the Gigabot. And um, in a matter of 24 hours, landed an awesome story in TechCrunch. We were funded a quarter of a million dollars by real companies and early adopters. 
Um, and since that time, I've been able to take a lot of that experience working in government and also starting a home company to um, consult with new startups and Fortune 500 companies on their design and innovation strategy. And so I formed a practice with my partner, Nico, and it's called Two's Complement. Um, and so what we do is we, we kind of think about the energy that binds us, the key known in Japanese or the force in Star Wars of analytical and creative or left and right brain thinking in design and development. And so that's what we bring to the table through our experience. Cool. That's amazing. Amazing, amazing stuff. So um, the NASA, the NASA initiative you were part of was kind of um, this whole opening up of NASA, right? That, that is, had been previously or decades ago or whatever, a closed organization, right? Um, and the, suddenly there was this new approach, maybe a predated you coming on, but um, this idea of um, sharing and, and, and bringing it outsiders in and sharing data and those kind of initiatives seem to transform the organization, right? Yeah, exactly. So our main goal was to take some of the stuff that was happening, really interesting projects inside of the agency at many of its different centers around the, the nation and help them understand the value of taking that stuff online. Um, and our, our, our uh, leader of the initiative, Nick Skitland, actually created a Twitter account for NASA without even NASA getting, you know, giving him permission for that. And it was really cool to see us kind of breaking out of the bounds of like, oh, this is all secretive. We have to keep this under, under wraps. And a lot of that stuff was carried on from like the Cold War era with the Soviet Union and us trying to get ahead of them in technology. So this directive was more about like, hey, we've got some great minds in the world. There's this thing called open source. And there's this thing called, um, you know, crowdsourcing. And we took a lot of interesting ideas that people wanted to work on. And a lot of folks just wanted to participate in space exploration, but don't have the opportunity to work at NASA. The thing is, a lot of the data sets that NASA creates are um, public domain because they're government owned. So it was this really awesome opportunity where, you know, a lot of companies were coming online uh, in, in that time. And bringing NASA into that fold just meant like giving space geeks the opportunity to participate. And that was like the huge um, flagship of the, of the program was to be open, transparent and particip participatory. Did you have any, were there people inside NASA who weren't on board with this, who were sort of, was everyone I think, yeah, and I think that you always end up finding folks who are averse to change. And, um, you know, it's like when you're working at one of the most high detail, like um, lockdown agencies where a lot of stuff is, is not privy to the public, it is a little bit scary to think about asking people to participate in government decisions um, when you've worked so hard to get there. And it's also like a matter of government security. So yes, of course. And the challenges there were, um, I think part of what made it so fascinating and such an interesting challenge and um, what made it so exciting. Yeah. So, so the, is the, 
the future, I mean, you're, there's a lot of things going on, right? Um, a lot of these things are about opening up previously closed domains to ultimately benefit individuals and organizations. Is that philosophy that you're carrying through in what you do now? Yeah, absolutely. Like just when I think about the future, I really think about things as a systems exploration. And when you change one stock in any system, it innately changes the way that the system works. So emerging trends really do embody where we're headed in the future and researching trends and understanding new markets is, you know, the pit of strategic thinking and applying them to everyday life is maybe more along the lines of what we would call critical design. And so there's this really fun area of design thinking called design fiction. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, Um, but it's like a really fascinating way to think about um, openness and the way that we think about problems and the way that we think about new technology. And um, it kind of looks at taking science fiction for inspiration and framing our understanding of potential futures. Mm-hmm. And these are things we can totally prototype by world creating, much like writing science fiction, um, discovering a new territory for other worlds based on the current trends and fixations in society today. And it's all about kind of like prototyping and asking questions. So for example, um, if we're looking at a self-driving car, which is pretty normal today, but when we originally thought of them like 60 years ago in a lot of films and books, um, we thought of them as being utopian ideals. And I think it was Walt Disney's World of Tomorrow. Um, He had this concept called the people mover, which was a furtive first step. And driverless cars were just like a total thing of fiction in movies, like Forbidden Planet and This Island Earth. But technologies that were cutting edge that 60 years ago are totally realized today. And it's really normal. And once you have a change to that stock and that ecosystem, it really impacts its surroundings. Like there's travel that's designed for work now because the driverless car concept is a perfect application for that. And you know, what does that, what do changes like that make for humanity and thinking about like, well, how much do we need to know about the design and the tech, the technology side of the driverless car as a consumer? Like when I think about openness, I think part of it is good to know, yes, like what things does that impact in my world, but also like how much of that technology do I really need to understand in order for it to be valuable to me? Mm -hmm. Um, So I have a friend, Andy, who actually like works from his Tesla now. And I'm super jealous that he's able to do that. Um, But he doesn't, I'm sure he doesn't, you know, completely care to understand the way that that technology works. Um, But then there are also people who are facing difficulties with the driverless cars. And so like a developer engineer, having the ability to get into the software and understand what's happening is the heart of the openness and open source movement. So it's definitely good to recognize the constraints. Um, And, you know, there's the idea of like the boundaries of what technology has, Um, you know, in terms of like what Tesla's doing, it's keeping everything really open so that um, they can create a more competitive market to increase um, this like green future that they're promising. It's totally working. So like their, their strategy of, 
keeping their technology open so that people can come into the fold and there can be more competition is is actually happening. Like there are several new car companies coming out. Right. And so I think when it comes to like making a decision about openness and in, in your work, it's really got to come down to like the core mission of the company, but it's also got to come down to like the ideals of like the new world that you're creating with this new technology. Mm-hmm. So um, we talked about design fiction. We've talked about this openness. Um, where, where do you see um, design, user experience? Where do you see it going? It seems it seems to me like we've we we created sort of um, a lot of uh, things that are fairly standardized now. Yep. Um, and the tendency is to replicate those standards. Um, so things tend to yep. be looking the same. Yes. Uh, I.e. we've sort of tested ourselves to optimization. Yes, absolutely. Um, I love this topic because I think there's a, a really balanced approach that can happen, the chemistry between the analytical and the creative side. We can't, we can't be stuck in the old ways of the past, but we also can't be constantly reinventing the wheel. So like automation and having kind of like a kit of parts when you're designing is really helpful. Um, like there's lots of benefits to that. But there's also this error on the other hand where designers and developers do things um, without truly understanding like all of the benefits of the system and without truly thinking about like, why am I doing this? Like questioning you know, why, why, why am I choosing to this autom- automating process? Um, you know, there's different types of designers and developers in the world. And I think on like that practical level in our fields of design and development, we often see folks adopting new processes or a piece of tech in order to fit in with the buzzwords like progressive web app or machine learning, AI, et cetera. Um, but we've noticed that there's either this like incredible fear when it comes to technology outpacing our ability to learn, or there's this lack of understanding of the core benefits of utilizing a specific technology. And um, technology in design and development is rapidly exponentially improving. Like there's so many ways to test um, your user base and to test an idea and to t- test it in the market today in you know even a day like you can you can do tests super quickly now um so there's really no there's really no excuse for not doing it but i think that truthfully we as humans we're not built to move at the speed that technology is advancing right now so it's just easier to say like those buzzwords than it is to actually dig in deeper and and understand more about like why you're doing what you're doing so for instance like my partner and I were talking about companies who mix together the words machine learning, AI, and neural networks in the same sentence. Mm-hmm. And we really question whether, like, A, they're using these terms together as a marketing term, or B, if there's some kind of, like, fictional, futuristic alignment to truly get to self-learning machines. Because, like, in reality, most of the data processing companies are really just writing complex logic structures and if statements and they can evolve and get us there for sure but it's not the reality of what companies are actually doing right 
So, so there's 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 a lot going on in terms of where where this is where this is going. It's you know a lot of my conversations have kind of ended up at this point where we've sort of reached a conclusion that technology is taking us so far and that um, we're now at this very interesting inflection point. You got the wealthy of Silicon Valley locking their kids' iPads up. <laughs> um, there was an op-ed piece in the Times which talked about um, time without technology is a luxury that few will be able to afford. Yes. Um, and this notion that um, people are sort of calling time out and um, then there's a sort of uh, below that is the sort of um, unraveling of the ethics of the various channels of the leading players in the space. So you've got a lot of forces that are kind of pushing against technology right now. Um, Definitely. You know, from the inability of our minds, bodies and souls to keep up with it all, process it, live with it, um, to the lack of understanding that we have of what actually, how did an AI reach that conclusion, which was to run over that pedestrian? Right, right. That, that stuff is super important to understand. And, you know, I'm just kind of like talking about some of these, these things, like, you know, new technology, just thinking about when 3D printing first came out and how there were these like crazy visions of everybody having them in their homes and what that would mean in terms of like our discussion about design fiction. Like what happens when you have a 3D printer at home? Do you, do you need to go to the store anymore? What happens to files and copyright? And does everybody have to learn how to program, et cetera? And yes, we're like still super far away from that being a reality, but that was a core discussion of well, like, um, the big, you know, the big thing in that world. People print, yeah. printing their own guns was the yes, yes, and it was you know more of a talk trigger than it was really um, a problem because the amount of effort that goes into creating something like that and getting it actually to work surpasses the uh, chance of them being mass manufactured. But it's still good to have these ethical discussions. It's it's still really, really important to have them because there is that fear of what will happen in the future. And especially when you talk about how we are raising our children and um, you know the hype that's surrounding a lot of these new technologies, like how much should we even invest in them? In 3D printing and IoT and VR, and recently for us, we've been investing a lot of our um, experimentation into blockchain. And a lot of people say, you know, that's nothing but hype. And it's so true. But at the same time, like these technologies will change the way that our worlds are shaped around us and they will absolutely have, you know, immense value. But it's always like based off of this weird innovation curve that happens. And, um, you know, there's always like a rise and then a fall. And I think, you know, and just us talking about the, like what you can do in user experience to explore some of these topics. I have kind of this like five step process that I've developed for thinking about futuristic speculative designs. So, you know, you question with saying, what if the future was already here to be? So in, in the topic of something like 3D printing guns or um, in the topic of like 
my child not being able to communicate or write with a pen because, you know, they're, they're spending all their time on a screen. Like using that as the statement that this already, this thing has already happened. This thing that the, the most horrible thing that we imagined is here right now. So that, that's the opening statement. And then we start with like that science and build the world around it. Basically, what are the rules of this universe? And who are the characters, like personas and marketing and traditional design thinking? Um, and then secondly, explore like that scientific inflection point. How is this technology impacting daily life and governments, et cetera? Um, really exploring and unpacking the, the assumptions that we have with some of the data that we have available to us today. Um, thirdly, like what are the ramifications of science on humanity? So kind of synthesizing some of that data and just really thinking whiteboarding, sticky notes. Fourthly, the human inflection point. What did we learn from this technology? How do we need to fix it? So this is like the prototyping phase where we create something out of this exploration. And then fifthly, what did we learn? Um, what fears were unfounded from, that, from this like original prompting question? How has this exploration changed our outlook? And I think um, in classical rapid prototyping nature and user experience, it's in general just to conceptualize and bring something to life and create value through like education or exploration of some of these like ethical questions and not just for creating innovation for innovation's sake, just truly understanding like the entire system surrounding a new technology or a fear that we have about new technology in the future. Do you, I mean, do you, at the end of the day, if, 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 if an entity has a motivation that is evil <laughs> or is uh, not particular is binary, like I want to cut costs, um, it's likely that those ethical dimensions will be ignored. I agree. Like, technology is a tool. And tools are machines that do human work. And, you know, this is what I'll take off my shoe and pound about. There's no line to draw. If technology is a tool and if tools do the work of humanity, then there is a level of humanity in all tools. And in the role of what computational systems do, they are just expressions of ourselves, maybe our better angels or our better selves without the dilemma of having an ego. Um, but computational systems are only programmed what they're meant to do. And this is, you know, a rising argument of like, in the debate of AI is that yes, we are programming these machines and we're telling them what to do. And they are performing these complex logic structure arguments, but then there are projects that Elon Musk has talked about that are creating their own like paragraphs and sentences. And um, they're able to do some of the creative thinking that humans do. Yeah. So. And there's no sort of legislation or anything governing this technology right now. I mean, not to say that won't be put into place, but um, there's just a group of people who are saying we need to watch out. And then there are people who are saying, okay. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, there's, I think, I, I think it's, uh, I mean, I was really, I don't remember who said this, and it was, it was kind of interesting. It was like, we never asked for the internet. It just came. 
you know, and no one said yes. there wasn't a referendum. There wasn't a sort of political process where someone said, should we or should we not have the internet? It just arrived. Interesting. And, and, and there was, I mean, there were probably discussions about the pros and cons of what it could unleash and pros and benefits and whatever. Um, but it, it came, it, you know, it, it came to societies and, and societies have had to live with the positive and negative consequences. And one yes. would assume that that's probably going to be the same with AI. Yeah, it's almost like it, it wanted to happen, even though that's such a vague statement. Um, but, you know, I'm just thinking about kind of the history of a lot of this innovation that's happened in the past. And it seems like a lot of it came out of post-war, the post-war industrial era. Um, you know, just the desire to spread information, to receive information. The internet is definitely something I absolutely every single morning I pray to it. I love it. It's like my best friend companion. Um, but I have this little pocket authority in my, um, with me that I carry every single day that knows that, that takes away the ability for me to have a mind of my own at times. And I, I definitely think about that. Um, and we're just like a consumer driven culture. We've become that way in the West. The problems of today impact us, you know, more globally than they did when we invented the internet. And today it's like more about the continuation of human humanity and what that means when man and machine blend. Um, it's just fascinating to think about like in 1939, that a group of policemen in New York city came together when America was coming off its worst economic period with a tension mounting between nations leading up to World War II. And they started the World's Fair in New York City. And it was this amazing showcase of innovation um, brought together just to inspire and create hope for people to look forward. And then, you know, the same kind of thing happened in 1958 with NASA when it was founded um, to compete with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And What's fascinating about, about the space race to me is that it wasn't so much about being on the cutting edge of innovation, but it was actually based on a ability that we wanted to demonstrate a society based on economic democratic capitalism and not communism would be able to surpass um, the way that the Russians were doing their, their innovation and thinking more about free enterprise markets and free economy. Um, it was more about actually incentivizing private firms to compete. And it wasn't as much about getting to the space and moon as it was about proving that our system would prevail. And that enterprise, NASA, produced in turn patentable inventions by the thousands. Like, And these patents were owned by individual contractors and contributors at NASA rather than NASA owning everything. Some of these systems were like water filtration, satellite-based research and rescue, and UV coating on sunglasses. It was all like from that compacted for decades of that incentive, like the incentivization of showing more about how we could do something different on a massive level than it was about just being faster to it. And so it seems like federal dollars really do fuel a vast enterprise of these research and development teams but you know i'm personally not a believer in war but the data does show that our country prevails out of its hardships 
right. and that innovation is kind of a way that we band together. And I think I experienced that a lot at NASA and in 3D printing is like brings people together to go after these problems. And I've, I've just found myself loving those communities. And I think the internet was like that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like this free, free information network. Yeah. I mean, I, and, I, and I think, and you know, I, I think a lot of people right now, uh, uh, what do I go back to is, you know, the Kennedy, Kennedy declaration of the putting a man on the moon um, was a cultural, political, social declaration, right? So, you know, for all the reasons you talked about, but was also, it was also about progress as well, right? It was about yes. moving forward. That was an amazing thing to do. That was an incredible feat of human achievement. Um, and I just, I just wonder whether, you know, now we are sort of technology, it's almost like the public relations piece of technology That's is, what I'm is, is, yeah. is kind of, it's kind of messed up, right? Because, um, you know, where society need, you know, there's people building new dating apps. Yes. Uh, when we've got massive water shortages across yes. the world and we've got climate change. Yes. So, um, and then you've got where the dating apps in the Silicon Valley piece goes is this sort of idea that this isn't particularly good technology. It's sort of, it's, it's um, rich people's technology. It's uh, developed world First world problems. First world problems, <laughs> exactly, yeah. And um, there's no one, I'm not saying no one, that's an it's a, inaccurate observation, but the energy isn't isn't focused on the real problems and the real problems seem even more important than the space race right now they really do i mean we have one planet and this is our one home and it's interesting like if anything i hope with where we're heading that people really do think about how humanity can become a net positive to the internet or to the uh, environment. I'm sorry, because companies really are the primary interface between humanity and the environment. And this ability for us to create enterprises to solve these massive problems, um, it's just not properly incentivized right now because we're such a capitalistic society. And I'm really hoping for a higher concentration of people who see and understand the connectedness that we all share. Um, within our world because we truly are connected. Like there's this, you know, concept that of a global village where it's like this heroic theory of multiple discovery that most inventions are made independently by many people at once, um, the same invention, but they're not in the same room. And today we're like simultaneously connected through technology to participate and actively co-creating the future. So I'm really hoping that, you know, there is an inflection point at some point where we do start to see more of our carbon footprint in a tangible way. And I do think that there are some interesting applications uh, right now, but again, I don't, I don't think it's properly incentivized by the way that our economy is structured. But surely, you know, from, you know, if you were sitting in a room with a bunch of 
young entrepreneurs at Syracuse University or at Wharton or whatever, and you were looking out at where's the most, where's a lot of money going to be made? Solving pollution problems and solving climate change issues and uh, green business is is got to be huge. Totally, I agree, and I couldn't agree more with that. And you know, just in fact, like the electronics waste industries is massive. There are tons of waste every year from us discarding our electronics as consumers, but then there's also like server farms and large companies who have this waste. And they're, they have like this economic incentive themselves, you know, from a government standpoint to recycle this as a tax benefit. But then there's this also this like great benefit of them reusing a lot of the precious materials inside of the devices. And so I think that like kind of cradle to cradle, you know, closed loop system thinking is really where design could help some of these startups in the future is just thinking about like how, you know, from cradle to grave, where does this product go? If it's a physical product and if it's a digital product, then I'm also thinking about how much energy I'm consuming. And that became extremely amplified when we were working on the blockchain projects as you know, you're actually seeing the computing power that's going into every single transaction and you're paying for that as a consumer rather than advertisers um, paying you by taking your data. Um, instead, like the blockchain model breaks out of that and it says, well, um, you're going to pay like a couple cents for every single thing that you do or every single thing you read instead of like an advertiser coming to you. Right. But you're talking about the energy consumption from yes exactly so like every single application online is using some server power and it has it's not you know the cloud is not this like existential thing um but it's truly like this you know server farm and all that data is being stored somewhere and all those actions cost money and that was a huge wake-up call to me as a designer when i was learning more about blockchain is just thinking about well, now that we are in a world where people potentially will not be using the same systems of advertising, um, but rather they're paying for their own applications, like A, is that even viable? And B, what does that mean for the way that we use digital products? And the same way of physical products and just us talking about sustainability, it's like now when you're developing software projects, my partner and I often think about the performance of the project. So like each image that we do on a website or an application, for instance, we make sure that it is like the smallest possible file and that things are being loaded in at proper times and that you can view these things offline. Um, and a lot of these things were like our newer topics in the software world that are more about the efficiency. Um, so I think there's just some parallels when you're looking at hardware versus software. So, you know, another, another thing is, you know, Shiny object syndrome. I mean, there is no, if, if a corporation like Amazon wants to push through Alexa technology, there's no real conversation about, it's actually so energy intense to, to ask Alexa for the weather, you know. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, it's good. Yeah, I'd love to research that. Yeah, there's, there's some statistics and data on it. I mean, it is, you know, the, the processes and the energy required to get that thing to come back to you with an answer is considerable. 
Uh, I would love to research that. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. And like even the topic of voice controlled applications is a really hot topic right now. It's like one of the buzzwords in design is this idea of zero UI. Right. And zero UI is just, you know, thinking more about the user experience of the way that you're communicating with the device rather than what you're seeing and what you're touching. It's more about that human interaction. Yeah. Yeah, but no, but, but the, these are these are important consider if if the planet is an important consideration, then everything should be audited through the impact on its impact on the planet. But that conversation isn't present, or I'm too dr- I'm, consumers are too driven by wow, I've got a forty nine ninety nine a thirty nine ninety nine device that I can talk I can talk to, and it will tell me the weather and the time and answer. It might even have make jokes. Um, <laughs> and that sounds really cool, and I want to have one of those. Yeah, and just thinking about what what we're afraid of now, I do think that there is a lot of fear around the environment, which could be a really good forcing factor for us to make a make a huge change and huge leaps in in our respective industries and fields. But like in the past, it was more of a fear of aliens, like the war of the worlds, and it was like a fear of job scarcity, which I, I think is still really a pressing topic is, you know, robots taking over our jobs. And then, you know, just the disease of boredom of like, oh, well, if I have universal basic income and if the machines are taking all of our jobs, like, what do we do about that? So well, it's interesting. Like, I hope that some of those, yeah, they seem to be like, like those fears in comparison with the fears about our environment seem to be unbalanced in a huge way. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's part of the problem is that, that, that there's no tangibility. Uh, it's just hard. It's hard to it's hard to make it tangible. Um, you know, I always I always thought you could have a terrorist attack which kills thousands of people, which gets everyone up in arms um, because the mental framing is so strong and the emotional framing is so strong. You could have a nuclear power station that kills. 10 times more people over a 20 year period because they get cancer and yep. no one really cares because it doesn't have the emotional impact. Yeah. And I also wonder if, again, like that goes into the public relations side of, you know, our discussion with NASA being founded in the energy of the Kennedy era. Um, you know, like, is there a way that companies can help the marketing or like the messaging of helping people have more empathy when they're disconnected from from something or you know are there fear tactics that we could stray away from and instead launch into more of like a arms arms up we're all doing this together um type of thing because it, i really do feel like it's part of the marketing behind it like there well are it's become it's become poli- it. what happened with the environment it was it became it became politicized Mm. And um, it became seen as a left-wing liberal agenda that was against big business, um, putting in environmental regulations, um, restricting pollu- uh, how much people could pollute. Um, those things yeah. were seen by the right wing as 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 being restrictions and and uh, constraints on business and right. and, yeah. and framed as uh, as left-wing. You're so right about that. And it's so easy for us to become easily corrupt, corruptible by, you know, media. Um, it's so easy for us to be nimble in the way that we think about that stuff. 
And, you know, when we were doing 3D printing at Giga, with Gigabot, our original mission was to utilize the Texas-sized plastic trash island, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, as our stockpile for 3D printing material. We wanted to take the plastic waste and reuse it in the machine itself. And it was like a huge mission, a great idea. Executionally, though, we didn't even have, you know, a printer that could print a toilet yet, the size of a toilet. So we, we, actu we actually had to start there. And it took us six weeks to develop that product, but, um, you know, it's now been six years and we're just now printing from um, pellets, like plastic pellets, which is still a step removed from waste. And like, just like the technical barriers there to get us there as a smaller company are, are like extremely limiting in comparison to um, like a large company with tons of resources. So like when we're talking about like these political arguments, um, you know, I don't, uh, it's just tough because the com large companies do a lot of beneficial things um, to help speed up innovation. But at the same time, um, there are bureaucratic systems, even political systems within large companies that restrict them from innovating. And we've noticed that a lot at Tease Complement is that like small ideas don't get enough room to grow. Like little ideas like that, that are kind of crazy and wacky. And why would you ever, you know, imagine they're printing a toilet that's silly, you know, stupid. Um, like at a, at a large company, it'd be really hard to make a case for that. Why so, is that? Why is that? Um, it seems to me like innovation is held back a lot of times, like if the idea isn't big enough um, or if the, the capital doesn't, doesn't line yeah. up in some way. But the, re the return on investment. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I think even NASA was like, you know, it's R and D budget when it first started, it was like 15%. I think it's like five now it might've recovered a little bit. Um, which is awesome they're still doing that. But I think just observationally, in my experience, it just seems like if the idea doesn't impact a billion people, then large companies won't even consider it. Like the Googles of the world won't consider it if it doesn't have the potential of impacting a billion people. Right. And they have the most of the resources to be doing, to, to be really pushing the, the needle on some of these things. Yeah, so that's a question of that's a question of scale. It's not a question of necessarily risk aversion. Right. Like we wanted to work with um, a large soft drinks company. Yeah. Um, we were talking to them for quite a while about they had some of these like interesting eco centers in developing countries where they sell their products and they teach the locals how to run entrepreneurship um, and we were talking to them about having them put one of our 3d printers in each of their stations which would be like part of our mission and would be amazing to you know help to see technology like that getting into the hands of people who have no access in comparison to what we have in the west um, and they wanted to take the machine for free instead of like paying us for it which was a struggle because we were a startup and while that would have been a great opportunity, like they so, didn't see the benefit gotta, of working with us right. as a partnership. 
And so that really disappoints me when things like that with large companies happen because they surely have the ability to support other companies in beneficial ways to the economy. But I don't know why that happens. It's just disappointing. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it's interesting. And I think maybe maybe your point at the beginning was um, or earlier on was was about this open sourcing openness, um, which I think is something that suggests that companies need to collaborate more. Um, the hard face of company. I mean, it's just sort of, it's hard to, to, it's hard to solve world problems on your own. Yes. And a really good example of that is many people don't think that the open source movement, you know, is that significant. Many people think that it actually failed, but the truth of the matter is I think something like 95% of all software projects utilize open source uh, software. And we wouldn't have been able to innovate. None of the, none of the young companies in 3D printing would have been able to create those machines if the plans to build the machines were not, if the patent hadn't expired, um, and if those plans weren't open sourced. Right. And um, like a good example of this was Facebook when Facebook released React, which is a JavaScript framework that we use a lot. And it helps you build websites in little modules and components. And it's really well uh, architected. And we utilize it as our language a lot. Um, but there was like a discussion a couple of months ago about how they wanted to change the licensing, licensing on it to make it um, closed so that you cannot make commercial businesses with that technology. There was like a total uproar. Um, and so React was one of Facebook's core technologies. And it just is like sweeping the entire development world. But they wanted to close it. And so there was like a major uproar and they ended up backing out of that decision because of the amount of people that, you know, had something to say about it. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's hard, it's, it's hard to, to take something away from people, right? I guess once you've built up a community, um, it's easy to see where they're coming from, but, I, you know, Maybe there's a, there's a gravitational mass of, of, of people who are prepared to push back and that changes it. Um, yeah, yeah, benefits, I mean, totally great to them for like listening, that was awesome. Yeah. Okay, so I think we're sort of almost up the time, we've talked about a lot of things. Um, mm-hmm. um, where does this head? Where, do we, where are we heading? Where's all this, where's all this going? Where, I, where, where will we honestly, be in two years' time? Yeah, I honestly, I don't know where we're heading, but I agree with you that I hope that we have some governance of, around how we design future things. I firmly believe that the future should complement our human traits. They should never disable our human characteristics. And for a developer, technologies that we can build with are totally, you know, lowering in cost significantly every single year for engineers and developers alike. And the lower the cost, the lower the barrier to building it, the closer we are to actually having these idealized interactions that almost disappear into our everyday lives. Coupled with online interactions and information sharing, the low cost of hardware are allowing more people to participate in building things. Um, so I think as the world becomes more technologically savvy, designers are being tasked to produce useful, functional, user-centered, and aesthetically pleasing products. 
and new products, businesses, services, etc., are sometimes most valued for their ability to influence society in positive ways. So, you know, just being on the fringes of technology, it's great to stay in touch with what's happening and to be on top of it. Um, I mean, that's sort of what makes a great developer and designer is just to know what the latest technology is. But I think where we're heading is um, that we will need to be more conscious about how things are made than we've been in the past. Because the way that things are built, um, like what we're talking about with autonomous systems and AI, et cetera, and incorporating those systems, like if we understand how they work and why they work the way that they work, we'll build better things. Um, We will have better governance systems around them. And we'll also be able to innovate faster in the future because we'll understand, you know, mistakes and triumphs of the past. And the only thing that's actually giving us the ability to understand the past are books. Um, You know, as human beings, we only really have stories to connect us from what happened in the past. And I think that's why, like, the discussion about science fiction is so exciting to me is because we're able to see how people interpreted what the future would be like by talking about ethics and what would happen. And I just think that the role of you as a maker is to demonstrate the future, not to conserve the past. Do you think there's a danger that um, people will get disillusioned with um, the lack of um, entrepreneurial foresight in the United States and go find it from some other enlightened country? Probably. And honestly, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. Yeah. I think that I totally respect the founders and the builders who are doing and tackling these challenges full time. Um, And I do feel like most of them are doing it from a core belief system that they have or from education that they were brought up with or their environment. And if we're kind of trending in the U.S. as not being there, then there's some kind of forcing function that might bring us back into this era of innovation that we've experienced many times in the past is just, you know, that desire to, to show the world that the way that we're doing things is the proper way and to, um, you know, sort of get our bearings and be able to show what we're made of. Um, but I think that having a more connected world would, would be great Um, I'm not an economist though, so I can't exactly say what ramifications that that would have. I just think that we are super connected now and there shouldn't be any limitations in terms of, um, competition. Cool. Um, that's amazing. Amazing conversation. We've, we've talked about so many different things. Um, could continue for a while. But we, yeah. unfortunately, I know we have to stop. Um, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.